episode of the Everything Went Black podcast. My old friend Malcolm Tent has joined us for a really fun episode. This is actually his second time on the show, so go back into the archive and check out the first episode. That's from way, way back. One of, uh, I think, might have, might have been in the first 10 episodes I did. I'm going to uh, post a player in the show notes, so if you want to listen to it, you can just check it out there. For a little context, Malcolm was the proprietor of Trash American Style, one of the most important record stores in the tri-state New England area. Nestled in Danbury, Connecticut, it was uh, halfway between Boston and New York. You know, it was a place I went to when I was a kid when I was growing up. Tons of bands stopped there because, like, once again, it was between Boston and New York. And also there was uh, nearby to the Anthrax Club, another legendary DIY, you know, hardcore punk venue that existed for a brief period of time. Aside from that, he's also a prolific musician. He played in a bunch of different bands, including Bunny Brains, Broken Talent, and his own solo acoustic music. He is also the main man behind the TPOS record label. Before we get going, I'd like to thank everyone on the EWB Patreon for their continuing support. If you want to support the podcast for as little as $1 a month, you can help me move the operation into the next level. Some of the things I like to do is upgrade some of the gear. Um, every episode, I feel like this Mac is going to crap out. So um, I just want to upgrade some of the equipment. Um, it's definitely time to do that. Also, the long-term goal of launching a legit video component of the show is uh, another goal that I have that I'm hoping to accomplish with uh, listener support. And um, so anyway, for as little as a dollar you can join, head over to the everythingwentblackmedia.com website and you'll see a pop-up. And uh, in exchange, you get a bunch of free stuff. I've made available free content such as uh, the Lifetime of Grey Skies audiobook, a bunch of Tombs covers, including Bowie's Heroes, the Stockton Tapes, which are the demos for the Grand Annihilation LP, which came out last year. And, uh, you know, some of those demos are a little bit different than what ended up on the record, so it's always, uh, it's always fun to check that out. Once again, I'd like to thank Onnit for being an affiliate sponsor. If you're into healthy living, head over to the everythingwentblackmedia.com website and you'll see two portals. If any of that stuff interests you, click through. I get a little taste. This episode, like all episodes, is brought to you by Savage Gold Coffee. SavageGoldCoffee.com. That's my coffee brand. If you love coffee, do yourself a favor. Pick up a bag. Stuff. Definitely. Yeah. So I back everything up onto cassette. That's how I do it. <laughs> and, you know. All you know what's long. funny about cassettes? It's uh, the format, you know, what, you know, in some ways, like, it's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty crazy format, really, mm -hmm. if you think about cassettes, because they, they definitely degrade over time. And, and even if you pick an old cassette up and try to play it, it's all warped and everything and, you know, weird, you know. But Not again, necessarily. We should be talking about this on the podcast. We are, actually. Oh, we are. We're talking about it right this now. is actually this is the podcast. It is. Oh yeah. my my. And um, I mean, this whole thing's like. I mean, you, you were actually on this once before. I interviewed you out in Danbury. And, oh my uh, yeah, so, God, this is getting embarrassing. Yeah, that's no, all right. It's just the podcast. Yeah. Oh. 
you there was a show in Danbury, and um, it was not too long after the shop had closed, and I think I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Was there video involved in that too? No, we took photos though. Okay, that was somebody else. Yeah, looked a lot like you. It might have been me, and you you know, like a lot of times, what happens with my brain um, is that sometimes I make a, a sort of aggregate of two different situations and yeah. they become this one thing. And I yeah. remember things differently. And, you know, the human memory is quite flawed, as we both know. Yeah, yeah. Can each provide ample evidence of that, no doubt. Well, I mean, even in, uh, you know, a murder case, you know, they, uh, the eyewitness is uh, oftentimes wrong. They'll mm-hmm. remember things completely different. Sure. I, I know there's an entire science attached to that i forget the name of it of course i forgot but uh, i know that there is like an entire branch of knowledge devoted to memory and perception and i actually just got done reading a really good book about pickett's charge in the war between the states and it's all about different recollections of what happened and like you know who saw what and the basic thrust of the book is it all we know is just a sliver of anything that ever happens. You know, all based in individual perception. Now, is this this was actually this? What was the name of the book? Uh, it was a very dry academic title. Pickett's Charge in History and Memory is the name of it. Oh, okay, very sounds very clinical. Yeah, so. it's a good read though. And it's um, it's based on eyewitness accounts of people, like different. It's it's a it's a a roundup of everybody as many different accounts as they could get and sort of like a compare and a contrast with what different people saw and experienced and how like a single event, like say a firefight on a certain part of the field was viewed from any number of sure. different angles uh-huh. and with any number of different perceptions. And some people said it was, it lasted for hours and it was hellacious and others said it lasted for a few minutes and was over and done with quickly. And some said that it was, a horrible bloodbath. Others said it was a light skirmish. Like everybody had a completely different perception of what happened. You know, it really speaks to the subjective nature of reality when you when you break things down that way about how, you know, like you and I are speaking right here. We're both taking the sensor the sensory inputs of our surroundings, but your experience of this situation and mine might be completely different oh sure you know and yeah uh, that stuff is um always interesting to read i think and uh i mean even just the way we perceive reality in general the way our brain filters certain stimuli and you know i mean there's a there's a there's a cat wandering around here and that cat experiences the world completely different than we do yeah and uh it makes me wonder about like the kinds of things that we're not seeing or we're not sensing in this world right there's a lot of it (laughs) (laughs) so one of the things we talk about though is cassettes. Is that a preferred format of yours? Do you like cassettes? Oh, I love cassette. Yeah, yeah. and I have to, I have to, I beg to disagree with you on the okay. durability of cassettes, um, especially in this digital age. And the listeners can't see the giant bald spot on the top of my head, but that's just for me tearing my hair out dealing with digital. Analog has never, ever, ever let me down. Even if it fails, you can fix it. Yeah. And I've got, like, um, I, I do digitization as part of my, my shtick to keep afloat financially. Right. I, I transfer cassettes and VHS and reel-to-reel tapes onto CD and flash drives and stuff like that. I just did a big order of a guy who had a bunch of cassettes and reels from the early 70s 
that I put on the CD, they all played fine. I'm sure they did. You know, he stored them properly and um, took good care of them. He didn't leave them on the car dashboard. They sounded great. But, you know, how many many times have you come across a CD that's maybe a few years old or a DAT tape, if anybody remembers DAT? You can't play them anymore. They They spontaneously disintegrate. Especially as CDs, once you get a tiny nick on it, it's forget about it. It's, it's done. all over. The, the aluminum oxidizes yeah. and the, the information literally corrodes. And then DAT tapes, um, probably one of the most unreliable formats for, you know, and people would, would mix their records on the DAT yeah. tapes back in the day. <laughs> oh, man. You know, and then I pity the fool. Yeah. Now, I'm a big fan. I like the analog world. My, my problem, I guess maybe it's more of um, a subjective reality situation with me and, and the cassette tapes is because... I was quite young when I bought most of those cassettes, and I did not wisely store them over the years. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, and also the quality. I think the ones that you buy, like say you bought like One Vice at a Time by Crocus or something like that. Oh yeah. Like that, <laughs> like commercial uh-huh. cassette is kind of like built to fail in some ways. It's like the chintziest, you know, construction. But yeah. the, like the Memorex recordable cassettes. Sure. Are definitely more. Uh, they're a little bit more. You know, have a little more girth to them. I think they'll last a little bit more. So yeah, absolutely. And any so any Chrome Bias name brand cassette is pretty much going to treat you well for your entire life, and then some. Yeah, one of the cool things is, um, you know, the sort of limited cassette releases that bands do a lot of times with mm-hmm. things. I like doing stuff like that. Oh yeah. You know, and uh, the only cassette recorder I have is actually like a Tascam, like Pro um, record. You know, cassette machine so nice when i do have the um you know the opportunity to listen to cassettes it's it's with a fairly professional piece of equipment which is pretty cool yeah yeah i mean i've had my <clears throat> excuse me my cassette label for like since 1984 at this point yeah. so i've been doing cassettes for 34 years i love them i just love them so the cassette label because i i discovered all this just to give people some context who might not have listened to the first time you were on the show all those years ago those years ago um, you were the owner of a uh, trash American style in Danbury, Connecticut, which was uh, a very important record store. If you were into independent music, punk, hardcore metal, you know, whatever you want to call it. And it was uh, midway between New York city and Boston strategically located right off of I 84, right off 84. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you had a lot of traffic and like, you know, kids up and down the East coast knew about trash American style. And, uh, you know, I, I constantly, well, not, not, I mean, you know, we're all getting older, but younger kids, not so much, but like, you know, guys, you know, above 35 were, are definitely on the East coast are familiar with trash American styles being like a shop that you need oh, to yeah. be part of, you know? And then, uh, we don't have to get into all the details, but through some underhandedness, um, you had to give up the store. Landlord screwed me to put it yeah. succinctly. Actually, I, I was I drove by there um, last week, and I think it's a vape shop now. It's it's amazing. <laughs> um, the The print shop that took us that took over our space because they had to expand has now shrunk back to its original size. Um, they actually they kept the spot we were in. Okay. So they're still in. See, this is the subjective reality we were talking about. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, the vape shop is next door where the cabinet shop ah, used to be. Okay. Yeah. And the the human barnacles who had the print shop are where trash used to be. Oh, okay. And their original storefront, last I saw, was vacant. Oh, okay. Weird. 
So right. thank God Danbury still has a print shop on Mill Plain Road. Life is good. Yeah, I mean, it would have been cooler to have a brick-and-mortar record store there. Well, I don't think I'd argue that point too strongly. <clears throat> but to bring us back into the present, um, but also referencing the past, uh, I first bought cassettes from you, from your cassette mm. label, back when you had the shop. Right. So, you know, what what's the story with the cassette label? Like, you know, why did you start doing that? Like, what kind of stuff do you have available? That kind of thing. Oh, my gosh. Well, I started doing cassettes... I think for the same reason a lot of people do is that I couldn't afford to do vinyl. Um, and my interest in cassettes as an actual like viable label product goes back to this band um, in Florida, because I'm, I'm originally from Florida, this band from Fort Lauderdale called the Gay Cowboys in Bondage. And they released a cassette album on their own. And... I was pretty close to being mind blown by the fact that you could do something like that, you know, cause my band had, I forget if we'd already done our record by the time that I saw the gay Cowboys cassette album, it was probably happening right around the same time. I didn't know that something like that had legitimacy that you could go to Zaire's department store and get one of those plastic bags of cassettes that would hang yeah. on the J hook mm -hmm. And take them home and put your music on it and go to the, the print shop and photocopy uh, an insert with some artwork and put the cassette in the shell and put the photocopied artwork in there as well. And all of a sudden, you've got a legitimate piece of music. You could sell it at a, at a, at a gig. You could take it to a record store and they would sell it for you. And people would take it seriously. That was like an eye-opener. That showed how cassettes were populist they were user-friendly they like anybody could do it and as a result an awful lot of music that never would have been heard never would have been heard got to be heard because cassettes were relatively affordable easy to use almost everybody had a cassette deck and you could release these things and people would take them seriously yeah actually um you know especially like in the death metal scene um, that was like how bands got the word out. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you if you would go and like you know any of the reference materials out there and look at a band's discography, like in the death metal or the black metal scene, you'll see that like they'll have like five five demo cassette releases before they actually do a full length album. And sure. There might be songs in those demos that actually never got recorded for proper you know LPs. You know, and um, that's kind of how you know I mean just like any other underground scene where it's just really populist and relies on word of mouth and communication between people that's like an ideal form for people to exchange like music and you know the artwork and the liner notes and all that sort of stuff yeah definitely like to you know to use your example i always think of the hellhammer demos yeah i mean in the early 80s that stuff was legendary um i first heard hellhammer because of the uh, apocalyptic raids ep and then somehow like reading in a magazine or somewhere However, knowledge was disseminated back then. I learned that these guys had released some cassettes, and that triggered a lifelong search for those things. Um, they finally got reissued, but yeah. you know, I was able to get bootleg copies of them. They sounded horrible. Sure, you know, they're like twenty eighth generation copies or whatever. But it was like the tangibility <clears throat> of this thing. You know, the the artifact aspect of the cassette that had this music on it that was almost sacred you know nobody else had it it was cachet if you had this 
and it was a big deal, and it was because of cassettes. The, you know, a few years ago, they they reissued that they collected them. There's like a multiple format thing with yeah. Hellhammer, where there's like a triple LP and yeah, and cassettes. And actually, there were not cassettes; there were CDs. And, Ironically enough, yeah, not the irony, on cassette. Yeah. <laughs> it already been done on cassette. They didn't yeah. need to redo it. But what was cool though is to finally. Um, I mean, I never had a legit cassette copy of any of the Hellhammer stuff. I just had you know dubs from people. Yeah. So whatever I was listening to was like way down the chain in generations you know yeah and uh but it was great to hear actually mastered versions of that those songs which were probably recorded in super primitive you know settings anyway yeah but uh but yeah the, the lp vinyl re- reissues of that was pretty cool i'd like to hear the vinyl i, I got the cd reissues because i have a an 06 subaru with a uh-huh. cd player in oh, it. Cool. you know that's when i get to do a lot of my just casual music listening and um i thought that the um the Triumph of Death demo yeah. sounded a lot better than the one I had on bootleg cassette. The uh, Satanic Rites wasn't that far removed. It, it's pretty crappy sounding no matter what. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> but know. still just great to hear. I mean, somebody described those demos as capturing lightning in a bottle. You know, and it's like as, as crude and primitive as they are, those guys captured something. They had an idea that no one else had prior to that. And they got it. They got it on tape. One of the most interesting things about Hellhammer is that the idea that they did capture on tape was probably a failure of what their actual intention might have been in mm-hmm. some ways. You know what I mean? Because um, no bands, I mean, maybe Venom, Bathory. I mean, I don't know if Bathory came out after Hellhammer. But in those early days of... Um, of that style, that, there was really no other bands that sounded like that. So, you know, I, I read the uh, "Only Death Is Real." Mm. You know, Tom, you know, Tom G. Ward. They're listening to a lot of different rock music and you know, Christian death and stuff like that. Where they would find these like Christian death records and Bauhaus, and they would also be listening to heavy rock and heavy metal. Mm-hmm. So, one of the coolest things is that, you know, both you and I know because we're both musicians, like. The idea that's in your head, the approximation that you come to that idea is what actually becomes realized like in the actual world. Yeah. Like you never quite nail that idea that you have 100%. So I keep thinking about Tom Warrior and Martin Ain and those guys like trying to like, like manifest this idea of something that's come before them yeah. that they never quite were able to get. But that was what Hellhammer was. And right. it created this whole... I mean, to this day, there are bands that are, are refer- you know, that sound like Hellhammer, are referencing them as being influences and sure. stuff. And, you know, ironically enough, they think, like, they use the lo-fi sound of those tapes as an aesthetic. Yeah. And they, they, they deliberately apply that. And it, I, I've often wondered, what if those guys, Tom Warrior and Martin Eric Ain and um, Bruce Day, what if they had been proficient musicians in a professional recording studio? Yeah. Uh, history would be different. Oh, exactly. And that that's kind of like, I guess, what, you know, pa- running parallel to like punk and hardcore music, um, you know, kind of the same thing. It's like some people don't like Black Flags in my head record because it mm. sounds like, like a Dio album, basically. You know what I mean? <laughs> and if they had made, you know, damaged, like, you know, in that manner with that aesthetic and that sound and that kind of vibe, like would it still have the same impact? You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I can't even imagine that being the case. Yeah. So, 
Things kind of happen the way they're supposed to. Yeah, definitely. I, I think a big part of the problem within my head, too, is it's just a lousy record. You know, you'll, you might not meet a bigger mark for Black Flag than myself. I, I mean, Black Flag had a large part in making me who I am today. But it's just not a very good album. Sorry, It's one of guys. my favorites, actually. Oh, boy, this yeah. is it. We're going to have a long, heated discussion <laughs> on this one. <laughs> actually, I'm not one of those guys who argues about things like that. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the, what, what, the only thing that gets me a little uh, perturbed is when people dismiss the Rollins era of Black Flag. You can't do that. Yeah, that's the only thing. I mean, I understand everyone's different. They have their own, you know, likes and dislikes. Like some people love Keith Morris, who, uh, you know, I love Keith Morris too. Yeah. But when there are people out there in the world that will dismiss everything that Henry Rollins appeared on. Yeah, that's, you're dismissing an awful lot of good music. Yeah. And I'll, I'll use that as an entree to say why I don't like In My Head. I think it's because of the pressures that Henry was under. I mean, first of all, as people out there may or may not know, it was supposed to be an instrumental album. It was going to be, you know, differing reports, whether it was supposed to be a Greg Ginn solo album or another Black Flag instrumental album. Either way, Rollins was not going to be on that record. And from what I understand, it's one of the few times he actually asserted himself and said, Put me on the album. You can't keep doing these instrumental albums. I, I need to sing. I'm the singer for Black Flag. And so the vocals are all just kind of grafted onto these instrumental bits. And also, for whatever reason, I don't know why Henry tried to do more singing yeah. on that album. It doesn't work because that's not his style. If you listen to the like some of the live, like tons of live bootlegs from sure. that tour where Henry gets into Rollins mode and belts those songs out... They're a lot better. They're yeah, I've a heard a lot better. of the live stuff. Do you think that it was the case of, um, you know, being coached along by like Gin or like Spot or somebody? To probably, like, I, you know? probably Gin. I mean, yeah. we all know Gin was the captain of that particular ship, for better or worse. Yeah. I, I can't imagine Henry making any kind of an artistic or creative decision because he deferred, and he he said this a number of times. He always deferred to Gin. Gin was the boss. Gin was the man. What Gin said went. Anybody in Black Flag would tell you that. Um, and that anybody in that group just tried to do what they thought he wanted them to do. Which a lot of times he wasn't very clear about, apparently. Yeah. You know, I mean, I wasn't there. I don't know. It's, I'm just a big fanboy who's read all the books and yeah, read all the magazines and, yeah. you know, talked to some of the members of Black Flag in, in brief here and there. Um, but that's the picture I get. Like no one ever said, okay, again, the record's going to sound like this and I'm going to sing it like this. I, I doubt that ever happened. Did you happen to catch, um, any of like a few years ago, there was the black flag, uh, new album and reunion shows. Oh you catch yeah. Any of those? They, that, that version of black flag actually played in Danbury, okay. my hometown. Um, back, uh, when we had the, uh, the heirloom arts theater, which has oh, yeah. okay. sadly become defunct now. Remember that place. But they played there. It was like Greg Ginn, Mike Lavelli, Lavella, whatever his name is. Oh, uh, yeah, Mike Valelli, the, the pro skateboarder. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a rhythm section of some sort. Um, really ironic because, like, I saw Black Flag a number of times back in the day. And um, this version of Black Flag, like, as far as being a band, was probably more of like a functioning band unit than any of the versions I saw back then, they were like actually playing with each other. Like in the original 
Black Flag, I, it, one always got the impression of four or five people on the stage at the same time playing the same song, but not locked in. Right, yeah. Like maybe with the Chuck Dukowski lineup, you had a little more of that. But with the like the Kira, Bill Stevenson, Sal Revuelta, Anthony Martinez, there was always this kind of sense of disconnect between the players. Interesting, okay. I, I never got the feeling of them actually vibing off each other. It was like whatever they were doing on stage was the result of those 25-hour-a-day rehearsal marathons to where they just each learned their parts so rigidly that they could go on stage and play them like that without having to interact. Hmm, interesting. Whereas the, I don't know if it's current or what, but the ah. like version that came out a few years ago definitely had much more of a feel of, of four guys on stage playing together. The downside is that the, the material wasn't that great. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sorry. And I listened to it. I went in there saying, okay, I'm going to, let's listen. Let's see what they do. It just, it wasn't that good. Yeah. I, the version I saw had Ron Reyes singing. Oh, you went to one of those. Yeah. It was like the first wave of that. Yeah. And, uh, Randy and I went actually. Mm -hmm. And, um, I went in there like, like I felt like I was walking into an ambush. You know what I mean? I was like prepared to like, you know, do battle with my memories of Black Flag, and, uh -huh. you know, and, and just just take the hit, you know, and um, I knew I was going to be disappointed, but, and I was, I mean, I thought it was, it was awful. I mean, it was great seeing Greg Ginn perform live and he's still a monster on guitar, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like watching sure. him play was great, but the songs were terrible, I thought, and yeah. Ron Reyes looked out of shape and, you know, like out of touch and whatever verb you want to use. Yeah. And I didn't see the uh, the Mike V version, but but his band, uh, Good for You, was on that tour, and that was just like you know some SoCal like punk hardcore type music, you know what I mean? Yeah, nothing nothing too distinctive about it. Not not good, not bad. Just kind of was what it was. Yeah, you know. And and I did not see the uh, the version with him singing. I've never seen that version of the band. Yeah, I mean it's one of those deals where if you had a free ticket and they were playing close by, sure. Speaking of old old guys out there, um, the uh, Dave Smalley, like I wasn't aware that he was such a right wing nut job. Yeah, I, I I've heard rumblings to that effect, but I don't know. I was never I you know here I'm going to make some heretical statements. I was never much of a Dag Nasty fan. Uh, Dave Dave Smalley's never really been in my orbit yeah. per se, but. Uh, yeah, even to my jaundiced ear, some of that's uh, drifted over. Yeah, because um, I remember in, when I was living in Brooklyn, there was a, a venue that I can't remember the name of it. Because I, I, I got to be frank with you, I never considered this place to be a place that I would necessarily go to. Because mm -hmm. it was, uh, I don't know, I just never had shows I wanted to go see. But then when they closed, there was this whole series of shows with all these different bands playing. Like Don, John Doe did like a acoustic set there, and then mm -hmm. Dave Smalley played. And also, I was like, huh, well, Dag Nasty's playing in New Jersey at Punk Rock Bowling, mm -hmm. and Dave Smalley's playing at this show. I'm like, how, how come they're not together? You know, like, what's the deal? And then I found, I mean, once again, I mean, I'm, I'm only a passing Dag Nasty fan. Like, I thought Dave Smalley was cool and, like, you know, like DYS and stuff like that. Right. But, um, but I found out that his politics is what kept him separate from you know, Brian Baker and all those other guys. And huh. It's kind of weird. Interesting. You know, I have to dig into that a little yeah, more. Yeah. I mean, once again, just by the way. Yeah. 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 More grist for the mill, man. Bring it on. <laughs> yeah. 
So um, back to the cassette label. Oh, yeah. I have a bunch of Manson stuff that you have released on the label. Yeah. And you also have Thor as well, too, right? Is that on the cassette Thor, label? Thor, the rock warrior. Yeah. Yes, I, I, did, I did him on vinyl, actually. Oh, really? Okay. I, I want my original plan. I've actually done two Thor records okay. in the past. Um, oh, man, Thor, what a... So how, what's the connection with Thor? Wow. Okay, this is a story I've, I've told many times, and I never get tired of it because it's just so wonderful. I'm sure you or maybe your listeners have seen the I Am Thor documentary. I have. Okay. I can't speak for everyone else out there. Well, <laughs> first thing first, if, you're, if you have a pause button, put the pause on right now and go watch the I Am Thor documentary. Not, not just because I have, I think, about two seconds of screen time in it, but because it's a great documentary. And... Once you've watched it, press the play button again and hear my story of Thor. Because <laughs> what I'm going to say is totally borne out by what's in the movie. Um, <clears throat> and I'm going to make it as brief as possible because it sure. can be very long-winded. I used to see Thor records all the time in the cutout bins of the record stores when I was a kid in Florida. Keep the dogs away. It was always in the 99-cent bin. And I would always look at that thing and be like, what is this? You know, the oiled up guy with the Dobermans and the hair and the spikes. It just looked totally ridiculous. Pro wrestling style. Yeah. I thought it was a big goof. So I would never, and I'd buy almost anything for 99 cents if it looked interesting. I never bought that Thor record because it just looked so dumb. Sorry, John, if you're listening, but that's just the way it is. (laughs) Fast forward many years later when I was at my record store, Trash American Style, and I got a promo pack in the mail, and in it was a new album by this guy, Thor. And it was called Ride of the Chariots, the Anthology. And it looked just as wacky as Keep the Dogs Away. But now I didn't have any excuse. You know, I, the, the disc was in my hand. It was free. It's like, well, let's listen to it and see what this is all about. I swear to God... By the time Thunderhawk came on, which is the fourth track of the album, I was hooked. I could not believe how good it was. I mean, the you know the the, the visuals aside, Thor can write. The guy is a badass heavy metal yeah. songwriter, and he always had top shelf players in his bands. Steve Price is one of those guitar heroes that that dude should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He is so good. So I'm like, this is amazing. I I need to know more about Thor. And the label that released it was in um, North Carolina. So I had had a bunch of friends in North Carolina, one of whom was a guy named Michael Pilmer, who I know from Devo circles. He's the world's, I'm the world's biggest sane Devo fan. He's the world's biggest obsessive Devo fan. (laughs) Great guy. But he was in Carolina, so I called him up and said, what do you know about Thor? He's apparently in North Carolina. And he said, I'm his manager. Oh, man. Wow. I said, please, what can I do to be of service to Thor, the rock warrior? And it turned out that Thor was going to be playing in New York soon thereafter. This was in 1998. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it was later on, like, you know, not, not later, later, but later. Yeah, it was like yeah. his, his first attempt at a comeback. Yeah, okay, right. Because I remember Thor from like the late 80s, I think. 
maybe. Yeah, he. I believe he retired like eighty-seven yeah. ish, somewhere around there. Right, because I remember being in like in high school, and I don't know if he ever made it to Carmel where I grew up, but there was a record store called the Book and Record Store in Carmel. Mm, no, and they had a, a gang of Thor records there. Right on. Yeah, I wish I could go back in time. I'd buy every <laughs> one of them. I swear to God. Um, anyway. Thor was playing at this place called The Spiral in New York City, which is a tiny, itty-bitty little basement showcase club, you know, which means that you'd book a show there and do all the work. Mm -hmm. They might have provided a sound man or whatever, but, excuse me, it's like you ran it. So Thor booked The Spiral. I drove down there with a couple of people, and, um, like, nobody was there. It was like me... The two people I went with, <laughs> Michael Pilmer off in a corner with like a cardboard box stood on its end with the Thor merchandise on top of it and a couple of barflies and like maybe like six or seven of Thor's friends from the old days in New York City in this tiny little quote showcase unquote venue. And Thor came out and did the whole show yeah you see that's it was the best thing i'd ever seen in my life and he came out and he signed autographs for all three of us and was friendly and engaging and i said thor i can do better for you so i did i booked some shows for him in 01 okay booked him in danbury new york city got him a radio a radio session on wfmu oh okay great Awesome shows. Every one of them was either a sellout or at least came close. I put money in his pocket. It was just successful from start to finish. And I asked him if I could do a record. He said yes. And he sent me some killer tracks. I pressed up a 7-inch. And it was like one of the jewels in the crown of my label. That's awesome. Really, really amazing. And then fast fast forward a bunch of years later, I wanted to reissue it, but due to various contracts he had signed since then, I could only reissue half of it because they featured his punk rock band, The Ass Boys. Okay. Controversial name. Apparently, they they would break a lot of wind. Okay. Hence the name. Yeah. And anybody who took the time to watch the documentary will know this. (laughs) Um, So anyway, yeah, because of all that, I now have two Thor records on my label. One is Thor and the Ass Boys, which is Thor's take on punk rock, and you just got to hear it to believe it. I got to hear that, because I, I don't... I'm trying to visualize what that must be like, because I, I, I feel like Thor is pretty far removed from punk music. Yeah, he really... Let's just say you got to hear it to believe it. Yeah, no, definitely. It's great. It's really, really great. And to get back to the cassette thing... I originally wanted to do a cassette reissue of the first seven inch I did with Thor and it devolved into it being another seven inch. Hmm. I wanted to do an eight track, but wow. Eight tracks. Yeah. I still do eight tracks, uh, but Thor wouldn't go for it. Unfortunately, do they still manufacture eight track players. Though? That's the real, as far as I know, they don't. Yeah. So you gotta really, you gotta dig and try to locate one to play it. Yeah. I'm, I'm a thrift shop haunter and I'm always looking for eight track recorders. Always. What uh, what percentage of those devices do you believe still work? Not many. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. Which that. is part of the problem. Like you know, occasionally I will find one. Yeah. And they're just shot. 
Although, it, like, I just actually refurbished one. I had a really good old JVC 8-track recorder, and um, I found a guy who could fix it. You see, that's that's the thing right there, because like we were saying earlier, it's like with uh, things that actually work mechanically, there's the hope, at least, that you can repair it. Yeah, yeah, yeah you can't repair yeah, you can't a, a computer, for yeah, God's like, sake. Like if this thing craps out, which any day now it's going to, mm. I don't know how to go in. You know how to go in there and fix that? Not me. No, it's and even if magic. I did, it probably couldn't be fixed anyway, yeah, because once the hard drive's corrupted or yeah. I don't, whatever. It's sorcery to me. Yeah. I don't know. I don't understand any of that stuff, really. I just know that this 40-year-old JVC 8-track, the guy put a new belt on it. He lubed up some of the switches. He, you know, took a little toothpick and, like, got some corrosion away from one of the transistors or whatever. Thing works beautifully now. That's awesome. Yeah. So, um, one of the things that our, our mutual friend Randy asked me to ask you is about the last sermon of Jonestown. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. That's actually at the pressing plant right now. Even so that's forthcoming. Yep. TPOS number 34 is going to be uh, an LP of the last sermon at Jonestown. How did you come upon that recording? Whew, that was um, a little bit convoluted way back when. All right, I guess I might as well go back to the original root of the matter. Jonestown, the People's Temple in uh, Guyana, and before that in California, recorded everything. They recorded all of Jones's sermons. They recorded their meetings. They recorded radio broadcasts. Part of the stash that was taken out of Jonestown after the mass suicide was, you know, thousands of tapes. And wouldn't you know it, they were rolling tape during the last sermon. That's very dark. It's yeah. hellacious. Yeah. It's like, I've listened to that thing I don't know how many times, and every time it's just like being beaten with a, a blunt object. I just have to just stop for a minute and uh, decompress after hearing it. And that, that goes for almost anything. I've, I've got a lot of audio from Jonestown, and it's all, it's heavy. Yeah, there's a lot of it floating around on the internet, you know, yeah. and, and uh, I've heard it from, I've heard a bunch of stuff, just like, you, know, you can download stuff, or there's, you know, pe people have made things on YouTube and stuff like mm -hmm. that. It's out there. <clears throat> Excuse me, I was fortunate enough many years ago to make the acquaintance of a guy who curates the Jonestown Archive at San Diego State University. And this was in the day of cassettes. I requested and received um, three boxes of cassettes. Um, I was focusing in on the music of Jonestown. I wanted to get, because they had a band at Jonestown called the Jonestown Express. Oh, okay. You know, know music that. was a big part of mm -hmm. all of the services. So I thought I would make a compilation of Jonestown music, which I eventually did on cassette. Um, and I figured, well, while I'm at it, why don't I get the sermon tape as well? Um, cause there, there had been a version of it on LP, mm -hmm. but very lo-fi. Sure. It was something that uh, Genesis P. Orridge oh, okay. from Psychic yeah. TV put probably, out. Probably Bristol, Psychic TV, yeah. yeah. And his version of the cassette was, it apparently originated from one of the, uh, the TV networks. And what it is, is somebody playing the cassette over a stereo system, or more likely a cheap cassette player, right, right. and somebody with a microphone oh, okay. pointed at the speaker. Yeah, so it's like super, super, just like lo-fi. It's real lo-fi. But yeah. at the time, that was all you could get. Um, until this guy at San Diego State University started archiving and organizing the tapes. And yet, like a lot of the stuff 
is out there now, but it's all, it's been MP3'd, it's been compressed, mm-hmm. yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's shite digital. I'm very fortunate to have stuff from, I don't know if they're from the masters directly, but they're at least from analog safety copies. <coughs> so it's about as good as you're going to get. And um, that's what I've got at the pressing plant right now. What's the uh, proposed release date for this? Hopefully by June. Oh, okay. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, like the, I just got proofs of the cover today and they look good. Um, I'm, I filled out all the paperwork and all yeah. the stuff with the pressing plant. So in theory, I can have the finished product in hand within 90 days. Wow. Now, you know, when you had the shop, it was easy to stop by and just pick these things up. Yeah. And now I've seen you around like various like WFMU record fair, and mm-hmm. all the big places to go and buy records, you know, festival type things. Do you, where, where can someone who say doesn't live in this, in the Northeast or the tri-state area could, where could they order this material from you? Well, <laughs> if you go on to the, uh, the 800 pound gorilla in the retail room now, which is Discogs. Okay. Discogs.com and just look up TPOS. That's T as in Thomas, P as in potato, O as in ossified, and S as in super slick. TPOS, that's the name of the label. And I've got a massive discography on Discogs, which somebody actually put together for me primarily. The guy who released the first record by my band, Ultra Bunny, mm-hmm. um, has an even more dangerous archival bent than I do. And he went through all of my materials relating to the label and just put together this, like, I I thought mind-blowing Discogs page. And I've just been building on it and elaborating on it ever since. So Bill Bailey, if you're out there, I thank you again for getting me on Discogs because it's quite a work. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, and all the Manson cassettes and all that sort of stuff. Some of that material is like... You know, I, I have a, a bit of a, a collector of um of that, you know, Manson's output. And mm-hmm. uh, I have, like, lots of different versions of stuff. And some of the material that you have seems to be co- pretty unique, too. Yeah. A lot of that was just from um, tape trading. Okay. To once again get back into the, get back into the wonders of cassettes. Um, like the LP I just did by Charles Manson called Walking in the Truth. That was from a cassette that I traded with some guy. In Florida in like 1986, maybe, 87. And to date, it's apparently the best sounding version of that particular session that's out there. Because when I did the LP, I went through Manson's people, Atwa, mm-hmm. and his number one contact on the outside, a guy, a guy named Grey Wolf. And he said that was the best. And it's interesting because it was, there was no real design. It was just a trade that I did many, many years ago, and I just happened to end up with the best-sounding copy of this one prison session. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I figured that should be on vinyl as well, so now it is. Now, also, it's come to my attention that you have um, in your possession hours of recorded conversations with Gigi Allen. I got a couple hours, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those things, man. Gigi was just such an interesting guy. I figured I should just record everything whenever I talked to him. A couple of times it was supposed to be me interviewing him. Right. 
but it would just devolve into like a bullshit session. Uh-huh. So it was just me and Gigi yapping about this or that, but it's pretty cool stuff there. Is there any any plans to maybe edit some of that down and release that? Yeah, you know, I don't I don't really think it would be that interesting, quite honestly. Like okay. really, I mean, if I thought that somebody would really want to hear it, I'd totally consider it. I'd have to go back and listen to it. I haven't yeah. heard any of that stuff in a long so time. So there's no like, you know, deep uh you know, rec- recollections or, you know, some sort of philosophical pinings. Nah, not really. It's it's basically just two guys talking about whatever, you know, <laughs> just whatever. I do kind of wish I had, I had had a, uh, like a bug or something when, um, he and I were driving down to the gig at SUNY purchase that we did in 1989. It was just like a really cool conversation. We were just talking about primarily how much we both love the stones and, um, our, our, our mutual favorite album by the stones was satanic majesties. So we just waxed rhapsodic about that album for probably about 45 minutes and that was great. Yeah, Gigi's uh, definitely a uniquely American sort of phenomenon, I think. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's like, I think that, like, like the earlier stuff, like with the Jabbers, I mean, that that's like, you know, like the Stooges are, are actually poppier than that. They, there was yeah. like songs that the Jabbers did that were like, could have been like pop hits, I think. Oh, absolutely. You know, if they, if they had been... I think from anywhere but New Hampshire. Yeah. And have been able to get their stuff more like if Sire Records had put out that first Jabbers, you know, always was is album, it would have been a hit, you know, as yeah. far as records like that were hits back then. I think that there was an audience because stuff is good. Yeah, definitely. It's just no one ever heard it outside the Northern Kingdom, really. Yeah. And even getting into like some of his like mid period output, like a "Eat My Fuck" and mm-hmm. "You'll Never Tame Me," I think are his two masterpieces. Well, you know, I, I'm I'm a big fan of like mo- like pretty much the whole even you know, like the acoustic records and oh, all yeah. that sort of stuff. I love all that. Sure. You know? But the uh, you know over the years, like you know when I was a kid, getting you know listening to Gigi, it was like definitely like the shock kind of. Like, Oh yeah, it's like very like <laughs> shocking to be into Gigi Allen, and you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then there was a period of time where I doubted the artistic merit of it, you know, mm-hmm. in my lifetime. Like I was like, you know, would reject it, I guess, on a certain level, and be like, oh well, you know, that's there's nothing really valid creatively about it. But then, like <clears throat> in the last like ten years or so, I think that <clears throat> I've become sort of full circle on the whole thing, and I'm mm-hmm. just thinking about like. Not so much, yeah, the music's great, but also the kind of approach to lit the life and the kind of like freedom of that. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's a guy who really, I mean, obviously he wanted attention, you know, for uncertain aspects, oh, yeah. but being successful as like a rock singer, I don't believe was ever on that dude's agenda, like towards the end, you know, towards like the mid to, I'm not saying he didn't want to do a good job in his music, but. Like, I don't think that that was necessarily, like, part of his trip. I mean, you might know more about that than I do. Well, you know, it, it's an interesting point. I, in the early days, I think rock stardom was absolutely on his agenda. I, I have no doubt about that. Um, his brother Merle, yeah. who's a badass bass player in his own right, um, luckily has a huge archive of photos and stuff. And one of the most telling pictures ever is one that he's posted a few times. It's one of those pictures that you would get at your local Sears or JC Penny oh, yeah, photo okay. studio. Yeah. It's like, you know, the picture of like you sit down and they get a picture of you 
like in profile with the dramatic lighting and then another wow. picture of you in a different pose, like superimposed in the upper right hand corner. Okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's like you sitting like this and then another you kind of looking down and there's one of those, a Gigi made at Sears or JC Penny or whichever one it was of him in all of his rock and roll regalia with the department store lighting and the department store, you know, kind of pastel background. Right. Beautifully lit of him singing into a microphone and looking very soulful. I mean, you can't argue with that. Right. That was, that was Gigi's honest to God impression of himself. And maybe over time that aspect of it did diminish but I, I think it's pretty safe to say that originally he definitely did want to be that the beautiful guy in the spotlight, you know, the, the rock singer, the rock star. You know, there hasn't been a lot of material written about him, like in, a, in an academic sort of way. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that's definitely like a big oversight, I think, in like rock culture or whatever. Because, um, I mean, I see his the importance of what he's done in like different like not even in punk music really like i see mm-hmm. it like you know like bands like watain like black metal bands like i see like that being influenced more by gg allen than say punk rock music necessarily you hmm. know what i mean of just this sort of nihilistic you know ftw kind of vibe you know what i'm trying to say yeah and um and i just think that uh you know his like sort of approach to approach to everything, and there's no real document about that that kind of thing. I mean, you know, there's been films and yeah. scribblings here and there about him, but I don't think anyone's ever really jumped in. And I don't know if it's too late for that. Well, you know? funny you should mention that, okay? Because um, I've got a, a Gigi Allen LP at the pressing plant right now. Nice, okay. And I'd I'd wanted to do something like that for a long time. I wanted to sit down and write a book about Gigi Allen as a serious performance artist. Yeah. My problem is I'm never going to do it. I'm never going to sit down and actually do it. But one thing I'm very good at is writing liner notes. Ah, okay. So... So you have like a 300-page liner note? Oh, God. I tried. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I tried to keep it down because I've got a couple of factors against me. One is the fact that I really don't want to sit down and write something like that. Sure. Number two being that as I might have mentioned before, I'm not, I could never claim to be an expert on Gigi Allen. I could never claim to know what was going on in his head. Sure. I'm just a fan. Yeah. You know, I'm a fan, and I think I've got pretty decent powers of observation. So all I can do is look at his output, his music, his life, and everything, and try to tie it together in a way that I think is coherent, mm-hmm. that makes sense to me. And so that's what I'm doing with the liner notes oh, of this album, okay. which is going to be called Portrait of, an, Portrait of the Artist as a Public Enemy. Nice. Okay, good title. Thank you. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, because this album's going to have some of his acoustic stuff, a couple of straight-ahead rock numbers, some spoken word, and some of his experimental noise pieces. I haven't heard too much of that. It's very hard to listen to by design. Yeah. And the thing that fascinated me the most about his experimental noise pieces is how much work that he and his collaborators put into them. It wasn't just like, 
oh yeah, just, um, I don't know, uh, scrape a hubcap across the floor for a half hour and I'll just rant and rave over it. Mm-hmm. Like everything was very, very carefully thought out. And Gigi was ultra specific about what he wanted in terms of the sounds and the fact that it should be almost impossible to listen to. He was very clear about that. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. And so that's all the kind of stuff I'm trying to write about, as you were saying, in a serious, uh, dare I say, scholarly yeah. fashion with my limited knowledge and my limited, just my, my limits as far as Gigi Allen goes. You know, because no one, you know, I think it's probably safe to say no one will ever, ever know what really went on inside his head. Yeah. No, definitely not. Yeah, it's just, it's educated guesswork. And, and as time goes by, you know, like less and less people, it's like, once again, it's that eyewitness account, you know, sort of paradox of like people remembering things differently. And the more yeah. time goes by, the more warped that perception comes. It's so true. I mean, I think just of my own personal experience, when we filmed the $20 poem with Gigi and Brian Douglas Clemens, which is one of those things that once you've seen it, you'll never forget it. The, the very next day, I started writing down notes. I was like trying to, to capture every single memory of how the video shoot went down because it was heavy. Yeah. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And at some point, I was interrupted and I never got back to writing, which I regret to this day. I don't have, I don't have hardly any regrets, but I really regret that I didn't finish writing the account that next day yeah. when it was still fresh in my mind. But as I remember it now, I'll go back sometimes and look at those notes and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, I don't remember it that way. Yeah. But that's the way I wrote it within hours of it happening. That really shows you how subjective the human mind is. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, and how time will just really mess you up. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, a big journaler, you know, I've journaled for decades at this point. Mm. And, and, um, a lot of that stuff I use for my own, you know, writing projects or like for song lyrics and things like that. And within the last like six months, I went back and read stuff from like 15 years ago and I had completely forgotten about whole chunks of time in my life. And then I read it and you have like that sort of deja vu, like reawakening of those like synapses. Yeah. And you're like, but it's not the same memory though. It's like a different <laughs> version of that. It's like a, a sort of degraded memory that you have because you have to like call that up from some like weird nerve ending in your brain somewhere, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I get that a lot because, excuse me, excuse me again, but that sounded great. Um, as some people might know, I'm, I'm a fanatical recorder. I record every show I play. I record every show I go to. And like you, I'll go through the archives sometimes because I got to find something for somebody I swear, I don't remember three quarters of these gigs. But if I go back and play the recording, it's like, oh, yeah, the little details will start to emerge. However incomplete, however faulty. I never get the whole picture, but it's like, oh, right. I was there, wasn't I? (laughs) (laughs) So now, what about the different music projects you have going on? You're still touring and doing all kinds of crazy stuff and recording and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Old man tents keeping plenty busy. Yeah. Um, just found out that my band ultra bunny Mm -hmm. is playing at crunch house on April 2nd, 
which should be uh, a riot, I hope. Where's that? Where is that? What city is that in? That's in West Haven. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's a totally amazing, really underground DIY venue. So underground that if you don't know where you're going, you're never going to find it, which is awesome. So Ultra Bunny at the Crunch House on April 2nd. Um, Malcolm Tent UK Tour. Oh. Commences April 18th. Nice. Very excited about that. Then um, probably doing the Midwest in August because we have the annual Devo Fan Convention. Right on. Youngstown. And, uh, Cleveland. Cleveland. Okay. Let's get Close that enough. straight. <laughs> <sighs> I'm okay. Um, but yeah, I go out there to play and just generally be a nuisance every year. And I figure, well, since I'm in Cleveland, might as well keep going. So I kind of like Cleveland as I a city. I love Cleveland. It's like, it's like a city that gets <clears throat> overlooked by a lot of people, I think. Yeah, which might be good. Yes, you're right about that. It might be good that people overlook it. Yeah. But I got a lot of, a lot of nice memories of Cleveland, a lot of good places there, and a lot of good people in Cleveland, I think. Yeah, and I'll tell you, man, the sunsets over Lake Erie are magnificent. Beautiful. Some of the best I've ever seen. Just magnificent. And yeah, it's a great launching point for a tour of either the Midwest or you can drop down south through Ohio and Kentucky and Tennessee and get into the Carolinas. So I'll be doing that tour in August. And then um, I am supposedly playing Anti-Scene's 35th anniversary show in North Carolina in October. So that'll be another tour. And I'm also supposed to be playing Gigi's 25th death anniversary show. In New Hampshire in June. That's going to be in Franconia with the Murder Junkies. Oh, wow. And the band that I'm in right now called They Hate Us, which features P.P. Duvet, the Murder Junkies lead singer, and the infamous Dino, Dino Sex of the Murder Junkies. no way, man, really? So it's half the Murder Junkies and little old me and a couple other dudes. Wow. And that's a lot of fun. Huh. That's a lot of fun. Does Dino... Is he living in like the Connecticut, New Hampshire? Is he in New England now? Or? Uh, he lives in New York, okay, in the city. Yeah. All right. And he takes the train up to rehearse with us every week. And we've just started the initial preps for recording an album. Nice. Yeah. Dino's good. He's like a metronome. You can just lock into him. See, that's the thing that a lot of people, um, they miss the boat on how good some of the players that were in the Murder Junkies were. Definitely. As mentioned before, Merle Allen's a badass yeah. bass player. And he writes in a style, like his stuff is <laughs> more complex than anything I could play. And he just reels that stuff off, man. It's great. I mean, like, there's a, there's a They Hate Us song called Sucking on Your Pussy on a Friday Night, which I actually just said with a straight face. <laughs> uh, but the Murder Junkies do it, and the way they do it, there's this whole break in the middle that we don't do. It's just this complex baseline that just moves it just moves the whole song and i doubt that i could play it on a good day and yeah merle allen hell of a bass player and dino phenomenal drummer and uh francis the guy who's been playing guitar for the murder junkies forget it forget it i've i've sat down with that guy in his living room and watched him just noodle around and i'm like i will never be this good I just will, like, whatever. I'm just telling it like it is. I simply will never be as good as Francis is. Just a fact. There are people out there like that. I hate them. (laughs) No matter how many hours of practice you put in, you're never going to approach, like, their proficiency. They just have the gene, you know? They're able to pick that instrument up and just wail on it. 
now as far as um you know like the distro and being out there selling records like you got anything like that coming up yeah there's always something like that um you'd mentioned earlier like you know fmu yeah. and the big record meets i also i do distro at punk shows yep. Um, I'll do various, um, like the Brooklyn flea, um, any kind of a flea market or an event or a fair that's got something resembling a crowd that can appreciate good music. I'll be there. There have been events in New Haven. They did something at the outer space back in December. The guys from Red Squirrel Records have done events. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, it's just really neat little pop-up things here and there. Yeah. And, um, excuse me, if you go to my website... (laughs) MalcolmTent.net, which I will spell for you, M-A-L-C-O-L-M-T-E-N-T. That's in the old Scottish tradition, MalcolmTent.net. I try to keep my uh, schedule posted and up to date. I'm also, of course, on Facebook, like the rest of the universe is. That's my name, MalcolmTent, M-A-L-C-O-L-M-T-E-N-T, MalcolmTent. I usually have my comings and goings posted on there along with silly pictures and pithy ramblings and stuff like that. So check me out. I'm a busy guy. Sort of a non sequitur, but do you remember Rosemary's Texas Taco? Oh man. Yeah, I sure do. Whatever happened to that place? Gone. It's gone. Like gone. long gone or like... It's been gone for a while. Yeah. It's a vacant lot now. That's a drag, man. Very sad. That place was awesome. Yeah, because I, um, you know, of late... You know, I relocated, so it's a little bit closer than my normal travels. You know, yeah. when I lived down in New York, um, in Brooklyn. I didn't make it up there that often. And even to see my parents, it wasn't really on the beaten path for me. Yeah. And I remember, like, last summer driving by there on one of my trips to see my folks, and I was like, it's gone. It's gone, yeah. Did, did Rosemary, uh, whatever happened to her? Did she, did she I, die or what, I don't what's up? know. I know that she, she was having business problems towards the end. Yeah. And some famous actress, from what I understand, like bailed her out for a while. Okay. Yeah, I remember reading about that. Someone yeah. told me about that. Yeah, yeah. But apparently, either that wasn't enough or right. Rosemary just lost interest and that was the end of Texas Taco. And I don't know what happened to all the stuff. I mean, That's... anybody listening out there, Texas Taco was like a mini wonderland. It was the tech. It was the restaurant which was housed in this little tiny like building, little house, yeah. with just all this stuff in it, stuff around it, in the yard outside. It was uh, kind of like south of the border, actually. Yeah, actually, you know, I was going to say that it's had this pastel color to it, and anyone who's traveled in was it, is that South South Carolina, south of the border? There's that, yeah, it's in Dillon, South Carolina. Yeah, if if anyone's taken ninety five and like hit that south of the border stop. It is like a miniature version of that. It's yeah. like this kind of time. It was this kind of timeless, like oasis, pretty much in the middle of nowhere. Like yeah, like in Brewster, was, New York, yeah. on Route Twenty Two North. It just stuck there, and it was like, you know, Mexican food made by this uh, wonderful lady from Texas. Yeah, right? uh, Rosemary, who was like, so in, as a young man, like seeing that being exposed to that kind of freedom as a young age of someone who was like, you know, just the, completely themselves. Yeah. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Really like opened my eyes to like the way that you could live your life in a certain way. Right and, on. And that was like, I mean, you know, the experience of going, cause that was like only for like one summer. That was like my every day I was there. Then I graduated high school and I was gone. Mm. But, um, but yeah, like I got me and my friends, we 
you know, of punk rock sort of, you know, persuasion would go there and hang out. And, and um, the summertime it was great to just chill there and get like some tacos and yeah. burritos and hang out and just, you know, what else are you going to do? You know? Right. It's all served by a little old lady with a mohawk. With a mo- I red mean, mohawk. What's not to love? I saw when the Ramones played Brewster, she was there and it was perfect. Perfect. Was that Brewster or was it like actually that... I think I remember the show you're talking about when the Ramones played there. That was Brewster. Okay. Right there on Route 6. If you got off 84, exit 21, I think it was, there was a place there called Polo's. Mm. That's exactly it. Yep. Yeah. That's that's technically Brewster still. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah it's, a smart, it's like a disco, right? Kind of. Or like it, yeah, I think it was, I think it was a, a highly suspicious tax write-off for any number of shady characters yeah, it until was... it finally mysteriously burned to the ground yep. one year. Yeah. One of those deals. Once again, I drove by <laughs> that stretch of road and I was trying to figure out like where Pol- what the name of the venue was and yeah. where it was. But um, it's completely gone now. I think the fence is still there. If you if you really look carefully, yeah. you can still see the old the gray fence that was there. Yeah, but that's gone, man. The Ramones playing in Brewster? Brewster, New York. imagine? Yep. If anybody out there doesn't know Brewster, look it up. You'll be amazed <laughs> at how nowhere it is. And I like Brewster. I'm just saying. It's it, nowhere. And and it's does have um a stop on the Metro North. Yes. Which that's the only <laughs> that's about it. like very, very obscure reason that you might want to stop there ever. Yeah. Is Plus the fact that they hate us rehearses in Brewster. <laughs> so I'm in Brewster a lot, okay? So I know what I'm talking about, okay? Any Brewster aficionados out there, don't get pissed off. Well, there's that diner too that's uh, Oh Bob's Bob's Diner. Man. I can only speak by my experiences in the past. I haven't been there in a long time. Yeah. But it was at one time the greasiest diner I've ever been to in my life. I haven't been there for a while. It was incredible. Yeah. But it, it was open all night. And right. You can't really. And you'd be surprised in certain parts of the country at how hard that is to find, particularly oh, yeah. in New England. Yeah, definitely. There really aren't hardly any. And Bob's was great because it, it's, and it still is, it's in an old diner car. Yeah, it's one like of those aluminum cars. Yeah. And the atmosphere in there is fantastic. Yep. And I don't know what the food is like now, but we'd go there anyway just because it was so cool. Yeah. It was just fun to hang out there. And there was Jack and Jill Pool Hall. And then still there. The Cameo. There used to be a movie theater in Brewster, too. Yeah. That the building exists and it's empty. I don't know what it is. And it still looks like a movie theater, but that's yeah. gone. But that Ramon show, I remember it was. Um, I think I was home from college. It was in the summertime, and I went with like a you know the same friends I used to hang out at at Rosemary's Texas Taco with, and uh, yeah, the remote and it was like uh, maybe like a hundred people you could fit in there or something. It was a smaller venue for them, you know. And I've seen the Ramones. I mean, you know, actually a variety of different size places now. Sure. It's like that place, you know, like you know Hammerjacks in Baltimore. You know, mm. it's like these gigantic venues, and then. You know, there's that um, On the Road to the Ramones. I just picked that yeah, up. Yeah, Monty's book. Yeah. It's great. I haven't, I haven't cracked it yet, though. Great book. Yeah. What's disappointing, though, there was a... And I, and I, I hate to, you know, roll this out on somebody because I know they probably put a lot of work in it, but there's a Misfits sort of biography called uh, This Music Leaves Stains. Yeah. Very, very disappointing. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Not, not very happy with it. Why is that? Well... They, it start, it's supposed to be about the Misfits, okay? But then they expanded to cover Danzig. Mm. However, 
I think Sam Hain was only like five pages in that discussion. Hmm. Okay. And Sam Hain is actually my favorite of Danzig's material. You know, that was like, that was the band for me, really. Yeah, you right, know? right. And it just, a lot of stuff was very, there was no interview with Glenn, which I know is probably impossible to get. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of interviews, a lot of, a lot of material with Jerry Only. There's like Ian McKay was in it. But you can't really have a book about Glenn Danzig without having a few words from Glenn Danzig in there. Cause like, yeah, even indirectly. I mean, you, one yeah. would think there'd be like some old radio interviews yes, or something they could stuff. quote, you know. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and that that was my that's my one criticism of the book. And I didn't, you know, I soldiered on. I like to when I start reading something, regardless if I like it or not, got to finish it. <laughs> you got to finish it, I know. Yeah, I can't just put it down, but I'm glad I made it through. So Right on. Well, anyway, thank you for uh, for taking this evening. Oh, this, sure. Uh, wonderful Monday night. Sure, man. And um and you you came here from a uh, radio show. Yep. I do my radio show every Monday on WNHU, which on the internet's is WNHU.org, and I'm on every Monday from 7 to 9 p.m., and my show is called Mr. Tent's Wild Ride, and I just play whatever I feel like playing. I usually do, like, the first hour, just random stuff, and the second hour, I like to do a theme set, and tonight's theme, since I'm reading three Sun Ra biographies simultaneously... So I'm kind of in an outer space mode. So I just all, all songs about outer space or relating to outer space. Um, and I play any genre. I really don't care. As long as it's good, I'll play it. Uh, but I, I am very proud and very happy to say that I have never once, and I doubt that I ever will, play anything that's been auto-tuned or auto-chorused or goes, Never! <laughs> Never on my radio show. You have my promise on that. So yeah, WNHU.org every Monday from 7 to 9. You shouldn't miss my show because it's really good. Awesome. I'll be tuning in. All right. Now I know it exists. So. Now that you know, see, it's a good thing I and came who, What the hell do you have to do on a Monday night anyway? Seriously. You know? You're all bummed out. You know, you, if you're like a lot of people out there, you might have worked a job or something, and it's your first day at work, and you're... Bitterly disappointed. And you need something. You need something to pull yourself up. And I'm it. (laughs) My radio show will do the trick. I don't make any promises or guarantees other than what I said earlier about what I will not play. But you know what? I try. I try real hard. And once again, thanks for listening out there. And uh, everyone take care. Talk to you soon. (laughs) 